Murphy's Law states that if something can go wrong, it will. If everything is going right, then you've obviously overlooked something. If it's possible for multiple things to go wrong, then the first thing that will go wrong is the one that will cause the most damage. My friends, that is Murphy's Law. I don't know about you, but I don't think Mr. Murphy was very optimistic. Along life's journey, I have met more than one Murphy. I've met individuals that just have a pessimistic perspective on life. Seems that everything is going against them. Nothing is going well for them. That life is out to get them and never gives them a break. I know people who live by Murphy's Law. And because of it, I think they probably die by Murphy's Law. This morning, we continue our eight-part sermon series entitled The Life of Joseph, Lessons on Faithfulness and Forgiveness. The last time you and I saw the patriarch named Jacob, he was suffering under Murphy's Law. Allow me to set the stage. Jacob had four wives and 12 sons. The love of his life was Rachel and she had passed away by giving birth to his 12th son, the one named Benjamin. About 23 years prior to our passage, he was certain that Joseph had died. Joseph was the darling son of Daddy Jacob. I don't know that Jacob ever got over the loss of Rachel and Joseph. I think that he grieved about this. I think that he was convinced that uh, life had given him a severe blow. Uh, to make matters worse, there was a famine in the land, a famine that so crippled the Canaanite economy that it also hampered every nation that surrounded Israel. The only place they could go buy grain to survive was in Egypt. And so eventually, Father Jacob sent 10 of his sons to Egypt. He wasn't about to send his youngest son, Benjamin. He sent those 10 sons down there with clear instructions. Boys, I'm going to give you enough silver to buy enough grain so we can maybe last through this famine. Don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything dumb. Just go down there, purchase the grain, bring it back home. Everything will be fine. You understand? Yes, Daddy, we got it. But somehow when they got down there, they had a snafu with the prime minister of Egypt. There was a little bit of a fiasco. The prime minister of Egypt, unbeknownst to them, was none other than their long-lost brother, Joseph. Now, Joseph readily recognized them, but they did not recognize him. Joseph understood their language, their dialect. He also saw that they were just as unkept these days as they had been 25 years earlier. Joseph never revealed his identity, at least not yet. He said that they were guilty of espionage. He claimed that they were spies who had come down to look at the most vulnerable area of Egypt, the Northeastern Territory, and they responded, oh no, sir, we are not spies. We are honest men. We are all 12 sons of one man who still lives in Canaan. 
The youngest is with him. One is no more. There's just the ten of us. We are not spies. We're just honest farmers. And we are just starving to death. And we need some food. And the prime minister, the second in command over all of Egypt, said, no, you are spies. And to prove your innocence, I'm going to keep one of you here in Pharaoh's dungeon. The other nine of you must go back to your father. And if you want to prove your innocence, you must bring back your youngest brother. If you do that, I'll know you're not spies. He sent them on their way. When they uh, made their first day's journey, they got ready to uh, set up the camp for night. And when they were looking through their things, that silver which they had given to the attendant of the prime minister, that silver was all right there in their pouch. It was right there in their sack. Each one of them looked through their bags and pouches and there it was. It was a silver. So not only would he think that they were spies guilty of espionage, now he's probably going to think that somehow they're thieves and that they've stolen the grain, kept the silver for themselves. They think to themselves, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Then they say, let's just go back and ask Father Jacob. When they get back home, Jacob says, you are a bunch of morons. He doesn't use that word, but in Hebrew, that's exactly what it means. You are a bunch of idiots. I went down there and told you just to buy grain. I gave you enough silver. You can't do anything right. Jacob is living under Murphy's law. What he actually says is everything is against me. Joseph is no more. Now, Simeon is no more. And you think you're gonna take Benjamin? down to Egypt, fat chance. Everything is against me. If something can go wrong, it will. Murphy's Law. Now, as long as the grain held out, there was no way that Jacob was going to authorize another trip to Egypt. He really thought he could outlast the famine. You know, the funny thing about a famine, nobody knows how long it's going to last. Only God knows. Jacob thought that by the grain supply that he had, that surely it would take him through a couple of seasons. But the famine persevered. It lingered longer than anybody anticipated. The grain ran out. The family began to starve. Father Jacob knew there was only one place to purchase grain. That was back in Egypt. He was very unwilling to send his boys back there. It was Judah, one of the older of the sons, who came to his father and said, Dad, I promise you, I'll watch over Benjamin. You have my word. I'll take care of him. His blood will be on my hands. You entrust him to me. I'll bring him back safe and sound. You can trust me. Very begrudgingly, Father Jacob agreed. And this time he said, now boys, please don't mess this up. Not only are you going to take the silver back, I'm going to give you a double portion of silver so you can purchase more grain. And don't you dare come back to the family farm with a double portion of grain and a double portion of silver. You give the prime minister his silver and don't stand there empty handed. In fact, uh, Father Jacob said, we're going to give him everything, the kitchen sink, everything that's peculiar and particular to Canaan. So they got a bunch of the, of the, of the balm and the myrrh and the various spices and the assortment of nuts, things that were uh, uh, 
part and parcel with Canaan, uh, with Israel in that land at that time. And he said, I'm going to give you everything. You give it all to the prime minister. You've got to get in good graces with him. So take all this down and get some more grain so that we won't starve to death. My friends, that brings us to our passage this morning. Genesis chapter 43, verses 15 and following. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Genesis chapter 43, I'll begin reading at verse 15, I'll read through verse 34. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt. They presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us, overpower us, seize us as slaves, and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, sir, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put our silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house, gave them water to wash their feet, provided fodder even for their donkeys, They prepared the gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house. They bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed low to pay him honor. He looked about and saw his brother Benjamin his own mother's son. He asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men who had been seated before him were seated in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. They looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Heavenly Father, we stand before you and we ask for your help today. Will you please help us to see your scripture, to understand your word? Help us to be strengthened today by the grace of God. And now, Lord Jesus, you know 
I am a bit under the weather, but I am completely under the blood. So, Father, I pray that you will empower me to speak your word to your people on your blessed day. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder what Joseph thought when he looked up and saw his ragtag, rebellious bunch of redneck brothers making their way back to Egypt. He knew how much grain he had given them. He had been at this long enough to be able to calculate how long that grain would last them. He had probably marked it on his calendar that somewhere around this date, my brothers will have to come back. Otherwise, they'll starve to death and leave poor Simeon to rot in the prison. So probably, uh, Joseph would wake up and wonder, is this the day? Is this the day? Is this the day that I am going to be reunited with my brothers? When he saw them, he noticed that Benjamin was with them. He called his attendant. He said, take these men to my house. I will eat with them today at high noon. You prepare the feast and I'll be there. The attendant met them before they could even get to the royal palace. He directed them uh, to the private quarters of the prime minister. And as they're making their way there, they think to themselves, this ain't good. We're going to die today. There's no way we're going to survive this one. It's really kind of comical, the thoughts that they have. Uh, they, they say that once the door is shut, he and his lynchmen are going to overpower us, overtake us. If they don't kill us, they'll make us their slaves, and they'll take our donkeys. It's really quite comical, the things that they think about in this moment. They're more concerned about their donkeys than anything. They're going to take our donkeys from us. That they make their way there, and they are laden with guilt. You remember the first time when they had that little fiasco with the prime minister, they spoke their Hebrew language. Uh, the prime minister, Joseph, stood before them. He understood them, yet they didn't realize he understood because he was using an interpreter. Yet they said one to the other, and Joseph could hear, they said to each other, this is happening to us because of what we did to our brother Joseph. Now that had been 23, 25 years prior. This is happening to us because do you not remember the look on his face? Do you not remember? Can you not still hear the pleads for his life? And all this is happening to us because of how we mistreated Joseph. Now, as they make a second trip to Egypt, as they make their way to the quarters of the prime minister, they think to themselves, now this is happening to us because of the silver deal, because of Silvergate, because of this fiasco, because he thinks that we're spies, now he thinks that we're thieves, we're never going to get out of this one. They are so preoccupied by their guilt, they're so overwhelmed by their guilt, that while the attendant is still at the front door, one of them goes up, I don't know who it is, but one of them goes up and says, hey, can I clarify a few things for you? Because listen, I want you to know, we're not spies, nor are we thieves. We brought the silver back, we've got it, we're gonna give it there, and we've got more silver to buy more food. They are overwhelmed with guilt. That causes me to stop and ask a question. I, I wonder, 
Which is the most vicious prison warden of the soul? Sin or guilt over sin? I know individuals who are very well aware of their sin. They know that Jesus died on the cross for their sin. And it's not necessarily the sin that they can't get over. It's the guilt that's associated with the sin. So that I know good Christians that are saddled by unbridled shame. They can't get over the guilt. This morning, if that's you, if you're here and you know that Jesus has forgiven you of sin, but somehow the guilt that's associated with that sin, and maybe it was sin that was done 25 years ago, and you still bring that guilt into the sanctuary of the Lord, this morning I want you to know that the mercy of God can cover over all of your mess. Not only the sin, but also the guilt associated with that sin. You may be crawling into the sanctuary, and this morning, I want you to skip out of here. And I know that we're Baptists, we're not supposed to dance, and some of you are saying, I can't even skip if I wanted to. But I want you to be so liberated today that you skip out of the sanctuary. Because there are far too many individuals, good people, God's people, who know that their sin has been nailed to the cross. But they still carry the guilt that's associated with that sin you remember the story that's tucked away in Isaiah chapter 6 the prophet of the Lord says in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord high and exalted the train of his robe filled the temple the whole place shook the doorposts the thresholds and I said to myself woe is me I am undone I'm unglued I'm as good as dead for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And it was the Lord who directed one of his six-winged creatures called seraphs to go to that place of sacrifice, the altar of God, and to take a live coal. And the Lord ordered that symbol of forgiveness, that live coal, to be applied directly to the lips of Isaiah the prophet. And the Lord spoke. See, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The mercy of God covers your mess. It covers it completely. It covers it thoroughly. Not just the deed that was done, but the guilt that's associated with it. Your sin is atoned for. It means it's covered. It's covered in the blood of Christ. And your guilt is taken away. It means demolished. It means as scattered as far as the east is from the west. My friend, God wants you to live in freedom. He wants you to live in spiritual liberty. He does not want you to be shackled by the skeletons of your past. He wants you to repent of that. He wants you to turn and go in the opposite direction. He's not just sweeping it under the carpet, but he says where real forgiveness has been applied, not only is the dirty deed covered over, but also the guilt that's associated with that has been removed from your life. This happened not only for Isaiah, but also for David. You remember after the escapade he had with Bathsheba, it was Nathan the prophet who came, and in a very creative story, he said to the king David, uh, 
You are guilty for you have stolen another man's wife, a precious creature under the Lord. He said in very dramatic ways, thou art the man. You are the sinner. You are the one who has taken that which does not belong to you. Not only have you taken Bathsheba and slept with her, but then you've tried to cover it up and you have used your position and power to kill her husband, Uriah. You are the man. And David is overwhelmed with grief and guilt, remorse, and repentance. He goes into his study and he pins what you and I call Psalm 51. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore the joy of your salvation. You know what he's asking for? He's saying, God, can you clean up my mess? And you know what God says? My grace is sufficient for you. My mercy can cover over all of your mess. He says to cleanse me. He says to wash me. He says to create within me a new heart. That, that word create that David uses in Psalm 51 is the Hebrew word bara. It is a verb that always and only has God as its subject. Only God can bara. David is saying, I know I can't give myself a heart transplant. I know I can't give myself spiritual cleansing. I know I cannot transform myself from the inside out. I'm asking for you to do what only you can do because only you are the God of the universe. So bara within me a new heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit and restore the joy of your salvation. Because God, I ain't feeling it. I'm not feeling the joy that the world can't take away. I'm not feeling the joy that bad experiences can't evaporate. I'm not, I'm not feeling the joy. So God, please restore the joy of your salvation. And everything that David asked, God did. Because God's mercy can cover over all of your mess, not only the action of sin, but also the guilt that's associated with that sin. You remember the Apostle Peter, don't you? The Lord Jesus did the very same thing for him. Peter had denied even knowing Christ on three occasions. The moment that Jesus needed him most, Peter abandoned Christ. And in John chapter 21, it is Jesus walking on the seashore and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Well, then take care of my lambs. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, now you're really cutting me to the quick. It's the third time you've asked me. You know that I love you with as much love I can muster. He said, then Go. Feed my sheep. What is Jesus saying to Peter? He is saying, my mercy can cover over all of your mess. You denied me three times, and three times I reaffirmed my love for you, and I drew out of you your love for me. Don't miss this, because the love of Christ can cover over all of your sin, not just the action of the sin, but the guilt that's associated with that sin. You've come into this house today, and you may be burdened, you may be heavy laden, you may be shackled with 
things that have been done or guilt associated with it. And on this day, I want you to know the balm of Gilead can set you free, not only from the sin, but the guilt that's associated with that sin so that you can live in spiritual freedom before a righteous, holy God. Because God's mercy can cover over all of our mess. Well, the boys of our story don't quite understand that. They uh, go up to the attendant. They said, please, we, we just got to clarify something here. Listen, we are not spies, nor are we thieves. We've got the silver. We brought more silver. We need more grain. If you could just relay this to your master, that would be swell. We would really appreciate that. Because we're kind of fearing for our life over here. You know, we think that, um, well, we just think it's not going to go well. So can you please help us? And before leaving, the attendant looked at them and said, do not be afraid. It's all right. Your God put silver back in your sack. I got your silver. And with that, he turned around and walked away. There is something lost in the translation from the Hebrew Old Testament to the English that you read today. That phrase where it says, um, it's all right, don't be afraid. What the Egyptian attendant says to these Hebrew brothers is the word shalom. Shalom. It's all right. Peace. God's peace. Shalom. Now, where in the world would an Egyptian attendant learn Hebrew vernacular to speak to Hebrew boys, men? Where would he learn that? from the prime minister. Because I think that every day Joseph would bear testimony to the goodness of God. Joseph never forgot who he was. He never forgot his roots. He never forgot where he came from. He never forgot the God of his family. In fact, in the years of prosperity, uh, Joseph was given a wife uh, by Pharaoh. And uh, Joseph and his wife had two sons. You know what they named those two boys? Manasseh and Ephraim. Those are Hebrew names. They're not Egyptian names. Everybody in the court looked at Joseph and said, why in the world do you put those names on those boys? They're going to be the laughing stock of all their class. Everybody's going to make fun of them because they got those goofy names, those goofy Canaanite names, those goofy uh, Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Nobody around here is named Manasseh or Ephraim. And Joseph says, no, that's what I named them. Because I don't forget who I am and where I come from, and I don't forget my God, and my God is the one true God of the universe. So I think every day when he woke up, he said to his attendant, Shalom, peace be with you. God's peace, the peace that passes all understanding. What that attendant says to the, to the brothers is, uh, Shalom, peace unto you. They recognized it. I don't know that it really sunk in, though. They began to prepare uh, all the gifts, Joseph arrived. When Joseph came in, they fell on their faces to the ground. And Joseph walks around and he counts and he sees that um, all 11 of those guys are here because Simeon has come back from the dungeon. They brought Benjamin there, so there are the 11 brothers. How are you doing? We're, we're doing great. We're doing wonderful. How's your aged father? Is he still alive? Still doing well? Yes, sir. Your servant, our father, is doing great. He needs some grain, but he's doing great. Is this the youngest brother, the one you told me about? Yes, sir, that, that's him. His name is Benjamin. 
Benjamin, rise. Benjamin stood up. For the first time in nearly a quarter of a century, Joseph locked eyes with his only brother of the same mother, Rachel. I wonder what he thought. I wonder how he felt. I wonder if they looked alike. I mean, I realize that two parents can have two children and they look like polar opposites. But sometimes they look like spitting images of each other, don't they? Bible says that Joseph was well-built and handsome. I wonder if Benjamin had his same frame. I wonder if he had his star-studded looks. I wonder if they had the same eyes, the same facial features. I wonder if they had some of the same gestures. I wonder if they were about the same size. I wonder what Benjamin looked like. The only thing that Joseph could say to his brother was, God be gracious to you. And he's fighting back the tears. This is one of the most dramatic scenes in all of Genesis. Joseph runs away. He can't stand it. I mean, he, he's a person of, of dignity. He's a person of importance. And in that culture, you were never to be seen crying in public. So he runs back to his own quarters, to his private room, probably his bedroom. He falls on his bed and he weeps. The word weep is to cry uncontrollably. It is liquid love streaming down his cheeks. He is crying and crying and crying. He's not bitter, he's broken. He's not nursing a grudge, he wants to give them grace. He's not having feelings of resentment. He wants to be reconciled to his family. Think about this. If this was you and you were in Joseph's shoes and your family had wronged you big time and now you're in a place where you can enact revenge against them and get even with them, most if not many of us would say, I'll, I'll take you up on that offer and I'll put them in their place. Not Joseph. Joseph gives extraordinary grace and he's broken for them and he weeps for them. He wants to be reunited with them. He controls himself, he washes his face, he goes back out, and he says to his attendants, serve the food. I want you to picture this banquet. This is a massive feast. There were three tables. Probably they're all in the same room. It's probably a very large room. One table is just for the Egyptian attendants because Egyptians can't eat with Hebrews. That is detestable. They thought that they were just the scruffiest, unkept, just the dirt of society. So no Egyptian, clean-cut, well-shaven, was ever going to be seen eating with a Hebrew person. So the Egyptian attendants, they had their own table, probably off to the side. And then Joseph had arranged for two long tables to face each other. One of those long tables only had one person at the table, and it was Joseph. And Joseph sat right in the middle where he could stare at his brothers as they ate. And then Joseph had arranged for 11 place settings to be there at the table. And I think it's implied in the text that it's Joseph who personally arranges the brothers. He arranges them in birth order. He starts with Reuben, makes his way all the way down to Benjamin. He doesn't miss a person, doesn't get anybody out of order. He knows exactly who they are without them having to say, this is my name. He knows them, he recognizes them, puts them in their proper spot. This may not sound like a big deal to you, but it goes, uh, it, it, it does um, go uh, observed by the brothers for they look at each other in astonishment. It was Henry Morris who said that there are 39 million ways 
to arrange 11 individuals in a particular order and the prime minister nailed it the first time. I didn't check his math. I don't know if there are more than 39 million ways to arrange 11 individuals, but I'm gonna assume it's a lot. And Joseph nailed it the first time. He got it right the first time. And then he ordered for the food to come out. And I can well imagine, I can use my sanctified imagination, and this is a tremendous feast. I mean, there's probably steak and lamb chops and chicken and salmon and lobster, and there's corn and carrots and potatoes and their salad, and their cheeses, and breads, and dates, and almonds, and uh, of course, in, in good Baptist fashion, their casseroles, and in, in good Catholic fashion, the wine was flowing like the Nile River, and there were desserts out the wazoo. I mean, greater than the Golden Corral, guys. I mean, better than those chocolate fountain kind of things, right? I mean, desserts as numerous as the sand on the seashore, and keep in mind, these brothers are starving to death. They're in a famine. So what do they do? Oh, they dive in, right? They eat everything on their plate. They don't have manners. It's just kind of, you know, dog eat dog kind of environment. I mean, they just are eating. They're starving and all this great food. And then I think that Joseph does something astounding. Once again, it's not explicit in the text, but it is implied that I think when it came time for seconds, it was Joseph who served them himself from his table. This is astounding because nobody was to eat the food from Joseph's table except Joseph. He's the prime minister of Egypt. He's second in command. He gets the best food that comes out. He gets the first food that comes out because it's implied that the first is the best. So his table would have the freshest. It would have the best. It would have the largest portions. It would have the first of everything. And while it's implied, I think that it is Joseph who gets up. And from his own table, he doesn't even order for them to have seconds from the kitchen. From his own table, he goes around and he stares and serves, stares and serves, stares and serves. Do you guys remember um, at Thanksgiving and Christmas meal when you would go to your grandparents' house as a child and, and your grandmother really wouldn't eat that much and she'd just stare at you and she'd say, Lord, you're doing my heart good, just eating the food I made for you, right? Y'all remember that? Y'all have grandmothers just like that? That's how the grandmothers are in Kentucky. And so I can well imagine that Joseph is sitting there and he's just enamored, just looking at these guys, probably not eating a whole lot of his own food, so there's a lot left over. So he goes and he just stares and scoops, stares and scoops, stares and scoops, and he serves his family. In fact, this is how I explain that when he comes to Benjamin, he keeps on staring at him and just scooping on his plate, staring and scooping, staring and scooping, staring and scooping, staring and scooping. And by the time he looks down, there's five times as much on Benjamin's plate as anybody else. But nobody's upset because everybody has more than they can have. In fact, they've already asked for takeout boxes. I mean, they've already asked for some, you know, takeout boxes to go home. They've got plenty, yet they look down at Benjamin. I mean, it is piled it is heaping they, he has five times as much as anybody else when I hear this story I wonder why in the world did Joseph respond with so much extravagant excessive kindness why did he do that 
And the best answer I can come up with is that Joseph knew what grace looked like and he was going to give grace to his family. You could say, Joseph, this is a waste. There are people who think that grace is a waste. Uh, Joseph, this is a waste. How many families could have been served by all this food where there's a famine going on? And Joseph, do you have amnesia? Do you not remember what these guys did to you? You have every right to retaliate and get back at them. Why, why are you doing this? And I think that if Joseph could talk to us today, I think what he would say is, I have received grace and I'm compelled to give grace, especially to the people that have hurt me. And family can hurt you more than anybody else. And Joseph says there's a place for grace in the family. There's a place for grace in the marriage. There's a place for grace in your parenting. There's a place for grace in the family of God. There's a place for grace in the marketplace. There's a place for grace. As God's been gracious to you, so you are gracious unto others. You're compelled to, even the people that have hurt you. You say, Pastor, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what those people did to me. I don't. They don't deserve my forgiveness and my kindness. Yeah, you're right. They don't deserve it. There's no denying that. In fact, if you give people what they deserve, it's no longer grace. By definition, grace is unmerited favor. If, if you give them what they deserve, it cannot be grace. If you give them grace, it has to be what they do not deserve. So if you come at me and say, well, they don't deserve my grace, you're right. They don't. You don't know what they did to me. You're right, I don't. But I do know what I've done to the Lord. And the Lord's been gracious to, to me. Joseph would say, the Lord has been gracious to me for the scripture clearly says that Joseph found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Whether he was in the pit, in Potiphar's house, in prison, in the palace. Wherever Joseph went, the favor of the Lord was upon him. Grace is not a few words we say before we eat a meal with every head bowed and every eye closed. Grace is not that cute little third grader who sits in the corner of the room with a big white bow on top of her head. Grace is not the sweeping of your actions under the carpet. Grace is not just forgetting your deliberate disobedience. John MacArthur said that grace is divine force. It's divine force of God's favor that's bestowed upon you even though you deserve divine wrath. That's grace. Grace is so much more than thinking you're going to get away with something. Grace is so much more than just thinking something's going to be swept away. Grace is so much more than just a couple of phrases that we speak before we chow down at lunch. Grace is so much more. Grace is an unstoppable force. It is Philip Yancey who says that grace is the last best word of the church. The church only has the grace of God, and that's the only thing that we have that the world doesn't have. The, everything else that we do, the world can do, and many times they can do it better except grace because grace is an unstoppable force it, it powers us through some junk 
It is grace that accompanies us in this world and beyond. It is grace. It is a, it is a, it is a powerful divine force of favor that God rests upon you. Do you deserve it? No. Have you earned it? No. What's the reason or rationale you've received it? Because of his goodness. Divine force of divine favor that's been bestowed upon you even though you and I deserve divine wrath. See, Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe and sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow. I can't help but think of Jesus when I think of the story of Joseph. Jesus is not the prime minister of Egypt. He's the prime minister of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, I have a place for you at my table. This banquet table of Genesis 43 is a lot like the banquet of Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son that comes home. It's a lot like the promise of the celestial banquet on the shores of heaven for all of God's people one day. Jesus says, I've got a place for you at my table. And I've got you lined up. I've got you in order. And I'll serve you myself. And I'll serve you from my abundance. And that's what Jesus does. And in a very picturesque way, what Joseph did for his brothers, Jesus has done for us. He puts us in our place. He gives us more than we could ever imagine. He does not give us uh, uh, retribution. He gives us reconciliation. He does not hold a grudge. He gives us his grace. And then he just lavishes it upon us so that when we look back over our life, we can see that God's grace has been piled high on our plate. It is splattered. It is spilt. It is, it is uh, all over the place. And we look back and we realize just like in, in Psalm 23, that goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. What David does there, he personifies goodness and mercy in the rearview mirror, and they're cleaning up your mess. So when you look back over the stations and areas of your life, over the different uh, seasons of your life, you say, what happened to that mess? What happened to that catastrophe? What happened to that desire? And goodness and mercy say, I got it, because I've cleaned up your mess. And when God cleans it up, he cleans up not only the action, but the guilt that's associated with the action so that you, my friend, can be free. Not free to go do it again, but so you can be free to worship the Lord wholeheartedly. Oh, this morning I wonder, who's here? Who's here who needs to receive God's grace? That, that divine favor, that force that God wants to bestow upon you even though you deserve God's wrath. Anybody here in need of God's grace today, you can come. Anybody here who's a recipient of God's grace, you're a Christian, but let's just be honest, you've got a family member, you've got a coworker, you've got a person in your life, and they are just giving you fits. And you have conjured up every reason under the sun of why you do not need to forgive them. And then you get slapped with this story. And maybe that's not by accident, my friend. Maybe God says, if I've been gracious to you, then you must be gracious to others. May we be a people who give a heaping dose of grace 
one to the other. And Father, we pray in your name, asking for your help in this invitation. Lord, speak to us. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.